Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations exploring the work and ideas of authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded live in front of an audience. My name is Aidan Flax-Clark. I'm the manager of public programs at the library and one of the many people who help put together the library's live events. On today's episode, the queer histories of Brooklyn's working class waterfront with Hugh Ryan, the New York Public Library's Martin Duberman visiting scholar. Between the late 19th century and the post-World War II years, Brooklyn's rise and fall as an industrial center brought hosts of new peoples and identities to the borough. And in that time, Brooklyn served as a complicated refuge for working class queer people, providing economic opportunity, inexpensive housing, social privacy, and sexual possibility, as well as police surveillance, racist exclusion, and gendered fetishization. Hugh Ryan, a Brooklyn-based journalist and founder of the Pop-Up Museum of Queer History, takes you on a tour of these places and times, from the Navy Yard to Coney Island, from transgender visibility on display at freak shows, to the sex workers who have played a major part in New York's economy since the late 1700s. Ryan says that toward the end of the 19th century, a generation of queer pioneers was being born who would all eventually congregate in Brooklyn. They came from different places for different reasons, but they were all connected by their need to make a living and a need to live safely. And yet, Brooklyn's queer history has been overshadowed by what he calls Manhattan skyscrapers of sexual visibility. His survey of Brooklyn's working class queer history along the waterfront is the first of its kind. The Martin Duberman Visiting Scholar Program at the New York Public Library promotes excellence in LGBT studies by providing funds and support for scholars to do research in our LGBT historical collections. The New York Public Library is home to one of the greatest collections of LGBT history in the United States. It includes the archives of the Mattachine Society, which is one of the earliest American gay rights organizations, the papers of pioneering activists Barbara Giddens and Kay Tobin Lahusen, and the records of both the Gay Men's Health Crisis and ACT UP, just to name a few. Duberman Fellows spend a few months researching a project at the library, and they also give a public talk on their work. This was Hugh Ryan's talk, and I hope you enjoy it. By the way, his work on this is in preparation for an exhibition with our friends at the Brooklyn Historical Society. No dates available yet, but keep your eyes peeled for it. I should point out that once in a while, you'll hear Hugh mention a picture that he's showing. Don't worry if you can't see it, you won't miss anything, but we're gonna post a few on the show page for you to check out at nypl.org podcast. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes. We appreciate the feedback and it helps others find the show. Okay, here's Hugh Ryan on the queer histories of Brooklyn's working class waterfront. Okay. Um, good evening. My name's Jason Bauman, and oh, <laughs> and I touched something I wasn't supposed to touch. Obviously, it was very we... intimate discussion. <laughs> oh, or maybe we backed into the lights. Okay. Um, welcome to the New York Public Library. I'm Jason Bauman. I'm coordinator of collection assessment, humanities, and LGBT collections at New York Public Library. Um, some people don't know New York Public Library has one of the greatest collections of LGBT history in the United States, um, having the archives of Manichean Society of New York, of uh, pioneering activists Barbara Giddings and Kay Tobin Lahusen, having uh, Gay Activists Alliance, uh, ACT UP New York's archives, and many, many other archives, including the archives of Martin Duberman, um, historian Martin Duberman. Um, this programming is part of an initiative at the library that we call the LGBT Initiative that started uh, about eight years ago to process all of these collections and make them as available to the public as possible. And so we, over that um, eight-year period, we've raised $3 million to 
uh, take care of these collections and promote them and digitize them. So welcome to library. And there was a brochure on the back table about the library's LGBT initiative. Um, so you can find out more. Um, I'm here to introduce uh, this year's Martin Duberman Visiting Scholar, who's Hugh Ryan, who's presenting Queer Histories of Brooklyn's Working Waterfront with Hugh Ryan. Uh, Hugh, Ryan <laughs> Hugh Ryan is a curator and journalist based in Brooklyn, whose work primarily explores queer culture and history. He is the founder of the Pop-Up Museum of Queer History and sits on the board of QED, a journal of LGBTQ worldmaking. During his fellowship this year at the library, he has been researching the queer history of Brooklyn's working waterfront in preparation for an upcoming show at the Brooklyn Historical Society. Um, he's this year's fellow for the Martin Duberman Visiting Fellow. And so this program at the library fosters excellence in LGBT studies by providing funds for scholars to do research in the library's preeminent LGBT historical collections. The fellowship is open both to academic faculty and independent scholars who have made a significant contribution to the field. Uh, the, the scholarship is funded by Martin Duberman and Eliz. Eli Zoll. So thank you all for coming and please welcome uh, Hugh Ryan. Thank you, Jason. Uh, I want to start by saying thank you to everyone who made tonight's talk possible, particularly the staff here at the library who've been so wonderful to work with. Martin Duberman himself, without whom I would literally not be here. Uh, and also everyone involved with the Pop-Up Museum of Queer History, particularly Avram Finkelstein and Rachel Matson, who were integral to the forming of this whole concept about looking at Brooklyn's waterfront. Uh, also the folks at the Brooklyn Historical Society, the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and my tremendous research assistant, Brian Free, is here in the audience. Um, I'd also like to thank the folks, all of you who are here, but also the folks who aren't here tonight because they're out protesting at Senator Schumer's house or they're at JFK helping the refugees. Yes, they definitely deserve a hand of applause. One thing doing this research has taught me is just how fragile marginalized communities are, especially when fascism is creeping up on us. And so I wanna thank everyone who makes it possible for us to be in this room by not being in this room. One more thing I wanna say before I start. The period I'm about to discuss is the moment at which our modern ideas about sexuality and gender really formed, what it means to be straight or lesbian or transgender. And some of the people I'm gonna discuss might've identified with those words if they knew them. Some of them did know them and did use them, but a lot of them didn't, and for a lot of different reasons. So I'm gonna try to really be specific about the language I use. I'm gonna use a lot of queer and gender non-conforming so that it doesn't seem like I'm implying some kind of identity that they themselves really would not have um, understood to have. So with that, we'll go start with the 19th century and the rise of the waterfront. Give you a sense. This is what Brooklyn Heights looked like about 1800, 1805. That's the view from the heights of Manhattan. In 1814, the first steam-powered ferry opened on the East River, ushering in a century of development that turned Brooklyn from a sleepy hamlet a day's journey from Manhattan into a major industrial port, which by the end of the century employed over 90,000 workers in 10,000 factories, mostly along the waterfront. When it opened in 1883, the Brooklyn Bridge allowed unprecedented commerce between the two cities, which would officially become one in 1898. New transportation also transformed Coney Island, once a distant resort for the wealthy, into the city's populous playground, drawing hundreds of thousands to its cheap amusements and free beaches. By at least the 1880s, gender nonconforming people were on display there, like the elegant Madame Myers, 
a bearded lady who was called the best of this class by the New York Clipper. However, Coney Island was also seen as a morally dangerous place that could lead one to a life of sin and queerness. Yeah. Not much has changed, actually, out there. <laughs> this was shown in the purple prose of the 1896 obituary of a sex worker named Josephine Johnson Jarnus, who was arrested for, quote, masquerading in boys' clothing at a young age, after which the obituary writer said, she led a gay life at Coney Island, and from bad she went to worse. Johnson was just one of the many working-class people who frequented Coney Island at the time. As Kathy Pace wrote in her book, Cheap Amusements, Working Women and Leisure in the Turn of Century New York, by 1900, Coney Island was thronged with as many as 300,000 to 500,000 people on Saturday afternoons, Sundays, and holidays. People from the tenement districts, a journalist observed, particularly liked the free dancing pavilions and bathing beaches, where they reveled in such indecorous behaviors as screaming, and chasing through crowds. <laughs> These transitions laid the groundwork for working-class queer lives to flourish in Brooklyn, creating readily available jobs, a dense urban fabric that provided anonymity, a global port that united cultures and sexual predilections from around the world, and the kind of cheap and unpoliced dockside neighborhoods where entertainment and vice, loosely defined, could flourish. A father of this burgeoning queer moment was Walt Whitman. That's uh, him there. How do I get this thing to work? There we go. That's him looking like a hipster with his boyfriend, Peter Doyle. Uh, a father of the burning moment was, queer, was Walt Whitman. Whitman was the editor of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, where he published editorials in favor of boys bathing nude together in the East River. And he typeset Leaves of Grass himself in a print shop in Brooklyn Heights at 98 Cranberry Street in 1855. Whitman deeply loved Brooklyn and the camaraderie of its working men. Or, as he put it in Song of Myself... The young mechanic is closest to me. He knows me well. The woodsman that takes his axe and jug with him shall take me with him all day. The farm boy plowing in the field feels good at the sound of my voice. In vessels that sail, my words sail. I go with fishermen and seamen and love them. Whitman acted like a beacon, and a lineage of white gay male artists would wend their way to Brooklyn in his wake, like the poet Hart Crane, who was born in 1899 in Garrettsville, Ohio, and Harper's Bazaar editor, George Davis, born in Chicago in 1906. In fact, around the country, towards the end of the 19th century, a generation of queer pioneers was being born, not yet knowing that they would all one day congregate in Brooklyn. Some were native New Yorkers, like Loop the Loop, born 1883, and Elizabeth Trondle, born circa 1895, two transgender people whose stories, which I'll get to in a little bit, were preserved because of their clashes with the transphobic judicial and medical establishments of their day. Others came to New York for work, like Lady Olga, the only bearded lady to ever be profiled in, by the New Yorker, who was born Jane Barnell in North Carolina in 1871. Some, like Mabel Hampton, a black lesbian dancer born around 1902, found themselves part of the great migration headed north to escape Jim Crow. Still others came from even further afield, like Crow Farini, the missing link from Laos, who performed at Coney Island, Emil Opfer, the Danish merchant marine who is Hart Crane's Brooklyn lover, and Gustav Beekman, who was born in Gammelstorp, Sweden in 1887, and who would end up at the center of a Nazi spy sex scandal in Brooklyn in 1945. These few were but the first wave, and many more would come after. Different forces drew all of them to Brooklyn, but they were all connected by their need to make a living and their need to live safely, both of which 
the waterfront uniquely provided. Historically, as George Chauncey noted in his encyclopedic text, Gay New York, quote, the most visible gay world of the early 20th century was a working class world centered along the city's busy, busy waterfront. This pattern holds true in many port cities, from San Francisco to London, yet an analysis of working class waterfront queer life in Brooklyn has never been done. For more than a century, Brooklyn's unique queer history has been overshadowed by Manhattan's skyscrapers of sexual visibility. First, it's always been the sub to Manhattan's herb, and its development as a metropolitan center has been stunted by its denter, older, and richer neighbor. For many of Brooklyn's queer residents, it was just easier to socialize on the other side of the East River before returning home to the relative safety of Brooklyn's anonymity. Second, because Brooklyn's Manhattan's queer history is more established, it's also easier to see, allowing historians to miss, dismiss, and ignore life in the borough of Kings. Moreover, the stereotypical image of Brooklynites has always been one of tough broads and street smart greasers working class men and women whose heterosexuality was as pronounced as their broad New York accents. This image not only discounts the vast diversity of New York City's most populous borough, it also relegates queerness to it being a diversion of the upper class, as though it were some kind of sexual water polo. However, let me get this to go. Oh, it seems to have stopped working. I'll have to use it this way. There we go. However, five particularly, five, yeah, sorry. Five particular kinds of waterfront employment in Brooklyn were particularly attractive to working class queer people. Sailors have long been a symbol of escape from small towns, and their long trips, marked by single sex isolation and exposure to different cultural mores around the world, provided great opportunity for sexual and gender experimentation. Artists were given leeway to be eccentric, and the Brooklyn waterfront drew them with its cheap rents, and if I'm going to be honest, with its cheap sailors. Sex workers, male, female, and transgender, frequently sailors, had ready clients and few observers in Brooklyn's dockside alleys and waterfront brothels. Freaks and entertainers, particularly those who were gender nonconforming, found lucrative work with few questions asked in the music halls and sideshows of Coney Island. And finally, in the lead up to World War II, female factory workers broke gender stereotypes and provided lesbians with previously unimaginable freedoms. So now we're going to leave the 19th century behind and move to the early 1900s, 1910 to 1920, criminal queers. They say sex work is the oldest profession. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Even when you have nothing else, you, have, you still have a body to sell. And in NYC, there was a brisk demand for bodies of all kinds. Sex work, from prostitution to burlesque, in brothels and on street corners, as a lifelong profession or an occasional hobby, has been a major part of New York City's economy since at least the 1700s, as Timothy Guilfoyle showed in his groundbreaking book, City of Eros, New York City, Prostitution, and the Commercialization of Sex, 1790 to 1920. Although Guilfoyle mostly focused on straight sex work in Manhattan, he noted that sex work in Brooklyn began to take off in the early 20th century and points to two locales in particular, both along the waterfront. The Brooklyn Navy Yard area was, quote, synonymous with commercial sex, he wrote, while Coney Island was known for its alleged condition of lawlessness and flagrant prostitution. In fact, Coney Island was so sexually charged at this time that as a young boy, the poet Harold Norse, who we'll talk about more in a little bit, recalled having his first sexual awakening at the age of four while living near the boardwalk, watching working class Italian, ho Italian youths horse around naked in the municipal baths. 
A few years later, in 1916, the Committee of Fourteen, a civilian group of moralizing anti-vice crusaders, embarked upon a novel method to find and arrest gay sex workers, dressing police officers as U.S. Navy sailors and setting them to investigate alleged ferry houses. This, I think, says volumes about the understanding that existed already at that time about the connection between sailors and queers. We'll get into that more in a minute. In a dive bar on 32 Sand Street near the Brooklyn Navy Yard, an area sometimes referred to as Hell's Half Acre, they thusly arrested four degenerates and the bartender accused of serving them alcohol. Interestingly enough, the bartender actually appealed his case, his arrest on the grounds that the crime the men had been accused of was so disgusting that no normal man on a jury could hear about it and ever find him innocent. This is the actual arrest card that they made for 32 Sand Street. And this is a letter where they explain this idea of using sailor suits, uh, which they then realize later is probably illegal. And so they kind of get hush-hush about it. Um, but finding this kind of queer history is never easy. Oops, skipping ahead there. And it often requires looking at these kinds of records, which are kept only when a queer person becomes a problem to be dealt with by doctors or jails. It makes sense, then, that one of the earliest records we would have of a transgender person in Brooklyn would be a medical report about a trans sex worker who went by Loop the Loop, a name taken from the popular Coney Island ride. Writing, writing in 1917 in the American Journal of Urology and Sexology, Dr. R.W. Schufeld, a noted eugenicist of the day, described Loop the Loop thusly, and I apologize for the misgendering in the next section. Born April 23rd, 1883, a young man sent to me by examination by Dr. Henry P. DeForest of New York City. Everything in his history seems to point to the fact that he is a typical example of contrary sexual instinct, with not a few things about him worthy of special record. He is a fairy from the slums of Brooklyn, New York, and is known among his associates there and in Potsdam, Pennsylvania, and also in Philadelphia as Loop the Loop. His trade is plied chiefly for the money there is in it. According to his own statement, he claims he has never been arrested or otherwise interfered with by the police, something I'm very much inclined to doubt. Nevertheless, he was willing to prove it to me by accompanying him some evening up and down the low streets and alleys he usually haunts. Fifty cents or a dollar will buy off any cop, he said, and that from dark to daylight. We all do it. As a eugenicist, Schufeld's aim in writing about Loop the Loop was to show that she was inherently degenerate and to prove that her degeneracy could be deduced from looking at her body. He described her features as having, quote, a criminal cast. Schufeld also wrote similar papers at the same time about heterosexual black women, showing one way in which modern scientific racism and homo slash transphobia have deep and abiding links. Finding the histories of trans people like Loop the Loop has an added level of difficulty over finding other queer histories, because in official records, they're frequently only referred to by the name and gender they were given at birth, and never by the ones they lived under. Such is the case with one Elizabeth Trondle, who in 1913 was arraigned in the Adam Street Courthouse of Brooklyn Heights for, again, masquerading in boys' clothing. In his deposition, reported in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, not only did Trondle say that he had worked as a male sailor, quite possibly given the location of his arrest in Brooklyn's port, but he had further attested that, quote, the first thing I'm going to do if I get off is to write to President Wilson asking if he won't let me to continue to wear pants. It's no use. I can't make enough to live on as a girl in my own trade. I like feathers and lace when I'm a girl, but I've made up my mind. I want to stay a boy. In reading Trondle and Loop the Loop stories, 
An incredible courage and unbroken spirit, despite the odds stacked against them, shines through. And these are just two of the clothing-related arrest records I've come across on Brooklyn's waterfront. There are many more, like Ida Johnson, who was arrested in New Jersey, but was living on Prince Street in Brooklyn. And this actually shows you, uh, sometimes it's even more dangerous if you find a record that does have all the information, because they published her name, her address, every other name she had lived under, all in the local paper. Uh, another uh, such record is Tina Beckrens, who was arraigned in a courthouse on Butler Street in Brooklyn in the late 1800s. Um, my favorite part of this is, is Bridget a woman? No longer a foolish question. I can't figure out if it was a question before or what, but it's fine. Uh, this one's one of my favorites, uh, Katie's Little Romance, about Katie McKinley, who, when arrested in boys' clothes and a buzz cut on Coney Island, claims that they had no idea how they got there, no real memory of what they'd been doing for the last week other than living with a woman and a couple of girls like her, and said that they couldn't remember their own name, their address, or anything else. Whoops. Trondle is interesting though because they actually have he actually has someone writing in on his defense to the papers so this is 1913 and this person signed their editorials Otto Sperling which is most likely a pseudonym as it's also the name of the royal physician to King Christina of Sweden an infamous 17th century invert about a month after Trondle's arrest Sterling Sperling writes to the papers around New York City there's actually a couple of different editorials to say quote the most searching inquiries have proven in many cases, especially in Dr. Mary Walker's, who had been just recently given special dispensation to wear pants by the president, uh, that they are, Wilson in this case, uh, they're absolutely rational in spite of this seeming pathological aspect. Not only so, but nearly all abhor any perverse desires and observe a most normal life otherwise. Naturally timid, most of these unfortunates dread anything like public exposure. Yet freedom in matters of dress means life and death to them. I know of cases where this dread has ended sadly. Trondle was sentenced to a stay at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in Westchester County for three years. Uh, not, though, for wearing pants. The judge actually says that he has every right to wear pants, but that he was loafing around and smoking cigarettes, and therefore he's a loitering degenerate. Um, so they send him to jail for three years, literally for smoking cigarettes on Coney Island. Uh, Trondle, after that, disappears from the public record entirely. But just a few years later, around 1920, 18-year-old Mabel Hampton, seen here, uh, would be arrested for prostitution at a lesbian party in New Jersey and sentenced to a stay in Bedford as well. Lesbians were often presumed to be prostitutes because they were out without men. The Committee of 14, who arrested those fairies earlier, uh, was really interested in unaccompanied women at bars, presuming most, if not all of them, to be sex workers. And this was particularly true for lesbians of color. As historian LaShawn Harris wrote in her book, Sex Workers, Psychics, and Table Runners, Black Women in New York City's Underground Economy, quote, whether strolling city streets with friends, visiting a relative's apartment, renting rooms to boarders, or operating legitimate businesses, Black women faced police harassment and were arrested and convicted for a number of crimes, including possession of number slips, loitering, vagrancy, and prostitution. When Hampton was finally released from Bedford, where she actually met a number of other lesbians, uh, her path led her directly to Coney Island. So this brings us into 1920 to 1930, dancers, poets, and sailors. Oh my. In 1919, the West End Terminal, a marvel of engineering that could handle hundreds of thousands of subway passengers each day, opened on Coney Island. This ushered in the area's busiest era, 
which coincided neatly with the Roaring Twenties. By that point, Coney Island was well-established as a place where anything goes, particularly in terms of sex and sexuality. Cheap and easily accessible by subway, it provided an egalitarian space for people of all classes and ethnicities to mix, and its baths and beaches encouraged public semi-nudity, giving the entire area an erotic charge that lured artists, thrill-seekers, and New Yorkers of all stripes. Shortly after she left Bedford Hills, Mabel Hampton got a job dancing in an all-black female ensemble at Henderson's Music Hall on Coney Island, this is her with her group, uh, where she did tap routines and sang popular songs of the day. She would later go on to dance in a number of theaters during the Harlem Renaissance and to perform with such queer black luminaries as Moms Mabley and Gladys Bentley. According to interviews she gave to Joan Nessel, the founder of the Lesbian History Archives, although she had loved women before, it was at Coney Island that she met her first serious girlfriend who brought her out into, quote, the life. As Mabel put it, the making of me? There was one woman in Coney Island. I can't right now recall her name, but she was the beginning of me being a lesbian. I was no more than about 17, 18 years old, and I fell in love with her. I went to work in Coney Island. That's how I met her. She was a dancer, and I fell hook, line, and sinker for this particular woman, a very charming person. That woman actually turned out to be married, uh, so Mabel actually never says her name on the tapes. And interestingly enough, that's kind of the specter that haunts all of my research, which is that of the five uh, jobs that I listed, there's kind of a sixth one that's missing, which is wife, which really was an economic proposition at the time. And many queer women uh, ended up married in heterosexual relationships. And in that way, their identities kind of become invisible to historians looking backwards. And we really only get these kind of mentions from other women who were out, who tell us about married women that they slept with. So I think of it as kind of like the weird specter that haunts my research. Um, Mabel actually didn't like dancing very much, surprisingly. She admitted to Nestle that, quote, she just did it for the money because she couldn't get any other work. Most lesbians that she knew worked either on the stage or in the factories by the Navy Yard. Queer women of color had even more limited options, as only some stages and some factories were open to them. The famed actor and civil rights activist Edna Thomas, uh, that's uh, Edna, where is she? There. Uh, and that's her girlfriend, Olivia Wyndham, sitting on her lap. And that's her husband, Lloyd Thomas, and his girlfriend. Uh, <laughs> The famed actor and civil rights activist Edna Thomas, for example, was able to occasionally work in Brooklyn theaters, but mostly worked in the uptown Manhattan theaters of the Harlem Renaissance. In an interview she gave to sex researcher George Henry about her long-standing love affair with British heiress Olivia Wyndham, Thomas discussed how racism also complicated dating at the time. I avoided her because white women are unfaithful. But she was persistent to the point of annoyance. She finally came to my house, and I had the most exciting sexual experience of my life. It has gone on now for five years because it's so very satisfactory. <laughs> Good job, Olivia. Uh, on the other side of Brooklyn from Mabel, in the shadow of another marvel of modern engineering, the Brooklyn Bridge, lived the poet Hart Crane. Crane was drawn to Brooklyn by his lover, Emil Opfer whose father edited the local Danish paper and had apartments in a, in a building at 110 Columbia Heights. In 1924, Crane wrote to his mother Grace about his move, emphasizing both its beauty and its affordability. I may move over to a wonderful section of Brooklyn facing the East River, Brooklyn Bridge, and the New York skyline. Later on. It would be cool and quiet for the summer, quite reasonable, and marvelously beautiful from the window. The view from 110 Columbia Heights 
actually was spectacular. Before Emil Opfer's father purchased the building, Washington Roebling lived there. Now, Roebling was the chief engineer who oversaw the final construction of the Brooklyn Bridge. After being incapacitated by a severe case of the bends from inspecting the pylons at the bottom of the river, Roebling oversaw the rest of the construction from one of the very same windows that Hart Crane looked out of at 110 Columbia Heights, while his wife, Emily, took over most of the actual engineering duties. Now, not much is known about Opfer, uh, although we know that Crane liked to call him Goldilocks for his hair, and that he traveled a lot, mostly to South America on ships. Um, we know that later he had a relationship with another queer writer and filmmaker named James Broughton, who he also met shipside. Uh, but towards the end of Opfer's life, historian Helga Norman Nielsen tracked him down to the small town of Elsingnor, sometime in the mid-1970s, a little north of Copenhagen, where he had settled down and married a woman. While perhaps surprising today, this kind of sexual flexibility was a hallmark of what was known as trade, the masculine, seemingly heterosexual men who nonetheless were open to advances and sometimes relationships with other men. In between times living with Opfer, Crane occasionally stayed at the St. George Hotel, a known assignation point for men cruising sailors. In fact, he convinced his friend and one-time lover, the novelist Samuel Loveman, it's a drawing of him by Hart Crane, uh, to move to the area as well. And Loveman, Crane noted in a letter to a mutual friend, was probably drawn more because of, quote, the attractions of the St. George subway station, which was a veiled reference to its reputation as a cruising ground. You can see this is actually a letter that he wrote on the Hotel St. George stationery. Uh, in the book, The Company They Kept, Crane's friend Edward Dahlberg described Crane's life in Brooklyn thusly. He lived in a one-room apartment, somewhat beneath the sidewalk, with a gallon of whiskey on the floor next to his cot and a pile of Sophie Tucker records for his Victrola. Though not yet 30 years old, his hair was the color of a seagull. In the daytime, he was deeply pooled in moldy sleep, and at night he ran about Red Hook, the libidinous docks of Tarshish in Brooklyn, soliciting the favors of sailors. Many times, Crane had been beaten by seamen, on one occasion, living on Columbia Heights, hard by his iron seraph, the Brooklyn Bridge, he complained to me the young man whom he thought had the milk-white shoulders of Pelops, I am paraphrasing Christopher Marlowe, Hart Crane's demigod, had stolen his clothes and forsaken him. He was sorely wounded by this ill hap, but, as I have said, when he was not humiliated or had not drunk hyssop in some waterfront pothouse, he was unable to achieve that Apollonian composure which he, he needed to enable him to sit at a table, the poet's guillotine and right. That's a really purple prose there. Um, Crane actually lived a remarkably open life for his time, and he recalled that one of his greatest pleasures was walking across the Brooklyn Bridge hand in hand with the person that he loved, presumably Opfer. That openness, however, sorely inhibited his income, as did his alcoholism and his depression. In 1925, he wrote to a friend, quote, I discover that I have been all along all too easy in letting out announcements of my sexual predilections. When you're dead, it doesn't matter, and this statement alone proves my immunity from any shame about it. But I find the ordinary business of earning a living entirely too stringent to want to add any prejudice against me of that nature in the minds of any publications or sinners. Crane's masterwork, The Bridge, is perhaps one of the most famous works of art about Brooklyn in the American canon. Although he would commit suicide by jumping off a ship as it motored back to New York from South America in 1932, just two years after the bridge was finally published, his reputation would cement the area's legacy as a queer arts neighborhood, which Walt Whitman had begun a few decades earlier. 
Crane was actually well aware of Whitman's writing and actually wrote to friends of his when his poems were compared favorably to Whitman's. By the end of the 1920s, actually, the downtown Brooklyn waterfront had a solid reputation as a queer neighborhood. After encountering, encountering, after encountering a campy gay waiter at a child's restaurant in Brooklyn Heights in 1929, Parker Tyler, a Greenwich Village resident who would later go on to write one of the first gay novels in America, The Young and the Evil, wrote to friends to say that, quote, Brooklyn is wide open and New York should be notified of its existence. <laughs> Brooklynites themselves were beginning to realize this. And two young queer Brooklyn poets from remarkably different backgrounds, the comfortably middle class Chester Coleman, that's Chester, and the working class son of Russian immigrants, Harold Norse. Uh, this is him actually near Coney Island. Um, <laughs> it's quite the picture. Uh, were coming of age in the late 20s and would soon follow Crane and Whitman to downtown Brooklyn, which brings us to the 1930s when the outcast takes center stage. Founded in 1930, Brooklyn College was unique for its day. It was the only public co-educational liberal arts college in New York City at the time, indicating a forward-thinking attitude towards gender and sexuality that drew queer people to it like a magnet. During the 30s, there were at least three professors who were out to some degree, both as gay and as communist. David McKelvey White, Bernard Grebanier, and Murray Young. Like Harold Norris and Chester Coleman, all three studied literature. And they actually formed a little bit of a, a queer circle. They're not uh, so much as like one that we would see today, but there were definitely interactions between all six of these, or all five of these guys. Although the name Harold Norse is little remembered today, in his time, he was connected to many literary luminaries in America, and his autobiography, Memoirs of a Bastard Angel, reads like a who's who of mid-century modernism. He explicitly noted that part of the draw of Brooklyn College was the queer history of the area. If our campus consisted of city streets, only a few blocks away lay an area venerable for its literary traditions, Brooklyn Heights. There in 1855, Walt Whitman handset the first edition of Leaves of Grass on Cranberry Street. In the 1920s on Columbia Heights, Thomas Wolfe wrote Look Homeward Angel. And a few doors away, Hart Crane conceived and wrote sections of the bridge. If spirit of place means anything, a case can be made for a literary line of succession that links Whitman, Wolfe, and Crane in a family of rhapsodic, visionary writers established there. I had found my literary place. And there was another link, the manly love of comrades, even about the lofty head of Wolfe hovered hushed rumors, the adhesiveness of brotherly love, as Whitman called it. My initiation into this brotherhood began there. Specifically, that initiation began when David McKelvey White brought him to the swimming pool at the St. George Hotel in a clumsy attempt at seduction. He failed that night, but Norse was, quote, impressed by the old world elegance of the hotel. And a year later, White would cure the virginity so dangerous to my health. <laughs> While working at a bookshop near the college, Norse met Samuel Loveman, who had been Hart Crane's lover a few decades earlier, who told him stories about Crane and their time together. He also got to know a fellow student, the young Chester Coleman, a callow but very attractive and sexually active young man. In Norse's words, Coleman had, quote, androgynous appeal, willowy grace combined with a deep manly voice, not at all effeminate, just young and blonde. He was tall, unathletic, with slightly stooped shoulders, a spinal curvature, and a heart murmur from rheumatic fever in childhood. <laughs> he disliked all physical exercise except cruising, which he said developed his calf muscles. <laughs> Other, less famous artists were also drawn to the neighborhood. 
Jeffrey Dickman, a transgender man who grew up in the area during this time, recalled that the area was filled with eccentric artists that he noticed on the streets long before he had any inkling about any kind of queerness, his own or others. Jerry Culbis, uh, see that's uh, Jerry there, uh, an old school butch, moved to Brooklyn Heights sometimes in the 1930s because her lover, Patty Storm, a ballroom dancer, lived on Hicks Street. There, Patty taught her, quote, not to walk like a truck driver in hopes of making Colbus more employable. For gender non-conforming people, employment was often incredibly hard to find, and still is. The infamous sideshow by the seashore at Coney Island was one of the rare places where gender didn't preclude them from making a living, although one that was often exploitative in its own way. The economy of the sideshow was tiered. At the bottom were novelty acts, like reformed criminals or once famous athletes. In the middle were what called made freaks, like tattooed women and sword swallowers. And at the top were born freaks, like half and halves, what we would today term intersex people, and bearded ladies. Perhaps the most well-known bearded lady of her day was Lady Olga Roderick, Jane Barnell. Uh, this is her with, I believe, her fourth husband, who worked at Coney Island on and off for decades. The salt air, she said, was good for her asthma. She was perhaps most famous for being one of the freaks in the 1932 cult classic Freaks. Uh, that's her right there at the end. Uh, and she eventually was profiled by Joseph Mitchell for The New Yorker. In his article, Mitchell noted the complicated ways in which Barnell navigated a professional life of self-exploitation. Quote, on a sideshow platform or stage, Miss Barnell is rather austere. To discourage people from getting familiar, she never smiles. She dresses conservatively, usually wearing a plain black evening gown. I like nice clothes, but there's no use wasting money, she says. People don't notice anything but my old beard. She despises pity and avoids looking into the eyes of the people in her audiences. When people look as if they feel sorry for her, especially women, it makes her want to throw something. Perhaps it was women like Barnell that songwriter Jimmy Monaco had in mind when he co-wrote the 1926 song, Masculine Women, Feminine Men. Monaco, who would later go on to have much greater success with songs like Dear Mr. Gable, performed by gay icon Judy Garland, he worked as a piano player at Coney Island in his teens, and the influence of that time is easy to see in his song's lyrics. Masculine women, feminine men, which is the rooster, which is the hen? It's hard to tell them apart today and say, sister is busy learning to shave, brother just loves his permanent wave. It's hard to tell them apart today, hey, hey. Girls were girls and boys were boys when I was a tot. Now we don't know who is who or even what's what. Knickers and trousers baggy and wide. Nobody knows what's walking inside. These masculine women and feminine men. This is kind of like panicky tone to it, but it's gently mocking. It's kind of fun. It's accepting of them. Um, and although there is that mockery in it, in the world of the sideshow, true intersex people, people born with indeterminate genitalia, men with breasts, women with beards, etc., commanded a high value and actually were really respected on the job. According to Ward Hall, a gay man who worked in circuses since the early 1930s, these jobs were actually often performed by effeminate men or butch women who, while not actually intersex, could pass because they were so gender nonconforming in and of themselves. In fact, one of the most famous bearded ladies of all times was most likely a fake. Jean Carroll, who's seen here with, uh, as a tattooed woman, made a living for decades by telling the story of how she shaved off her beard out of love for her husband. But, she said, because she also loved the circus and needed to make a living, she became the tattooed woman. You can see here the story of how I became the tattoo queen. 
According to new research done by Emilia Clem Osterud, a historian of tattooed women, this story is almost certainly untrue, but it documents a fascinating piece of gendered history. At the time, in the 30s, tattooed women were considered so shocking, they needed to have an origin story, something that provided an excuse for their unwomanly appearance. In the early 18, or in the late 1800s, that was usually, I was born in the South Seas, or I was kidnapped by pirates, or uh, something along those lines. But in Carol's day, in the 20s and 30s, it was more fashionable to make up a story about being jilted in love, and because you were never going to love again, you did this to your body. Uh, as an added bonus, Carol's story made gave her the possibility that she might have the ability to grow a beard, which made her slightly more in demand because it meant that she could also work as a born freak. However, while Coney Island provided a way for some gender nonconforming people to make a living, there was a strict color line. White women with hypertrichosis, the medical term for excess hair, were exhibited as bearded women, but women of color with this condition were exhibited as animal girls or primitives. Perhaps the most famous of these women at Coney Island was Crow Farini. Born in Laos, Farini spoke at least three languages and toured around the world for nearly 40 years as the missing link. When offstage, she lived in Brooklyn in Sunset Park and wore a veil at all times to hide her condition. By the time she died, she was so sick of being gawked at that she specified there be no wake and that her body be cremated. This kind of racism was by no means limited to the sideshow, and women of color ran up, to, ran up against it again and again in the impending lead-up to World War II at the end of the 30s. In fact, World War II was about to change everything for everyone. In 1939, the British poet W.H. Auden moved to Montague Terrace in Brooklyn Heights, partially to escape the war in Europe. When he and Christopher Isherwood came to Brooklyn College to give a reading, Chester Coleman and Harold Norse set out to seduce them. Coleman succeeded, and he and Auden had a tumultuous relationship for years to come. Much of it took place around the corner from Brooklyn College at 7 Middall Street in an infamous queer artist commune known as February House. So this brings us into the 40, early part of the 40s, which is Brooklyn at ease. In 1940, Harper's Bazaar editor George Davis had a dream about a house in Brooklyn Heights, a place where he and his good friend Carson McCullers could write. That's them sort of looking at the camera. Uh, according to the book February House by Cheryl Tippins, he wanted to create, quote, a sanctuary for themselves and others who were also, for financial, political, or any other reason, finding it difficult to focus on their work. That dream became manifest at 7 Middle Street, aka February House, and over the course of the next five years, it would be home to a succession of queer luminaries. Quickly after meeting Chester Coleman, Auden agreed to move into February House, in part to hide their relationship from the prying eyes of his nosy landlady in his tonier section of the Heights. Also, it was cheaper. Aside from Davis, McCullers, Auden, and Coleman, other denizens of February House included Benjamin Britten and his lover, tenor Peter Pierce, the married queer authors Paul and Jane Bowles, the famous scenic designer Oliver Smith, um, and queer visitors included Erica, Cla Erica and Klaus Mann, Christopher Isherwood, Lincoln Kirstein, Salita Solano, and Janet Flanner. McCullers, in particular, found Meadow Street to be a place where she could explore both herself and her writing. This is her in her room, or no, this is, I believe, in the living room at the piano. Uh, in long talks with George Davis and Gypsy Rose Lee, another of the housemates, she developed the queer themes of the bride and her brother. According to biographer Virginia Spencer Carr, uh, quote, doubtless, Carson's fictional character evolving then, Frankie Adams in The Bride, who was both attracted to and repelled by freaks, owed much of her genesis to Carson's long session with George Davis. And it was while talking with Gypsy, shown here in her room, 
that McCullers had the realization that Frankie was in love with her brother and his bride, a realization perhaps motivated by McCullers' own feelings towards Gypsy. As Gypsy Rose Lee historian Karen Abbott once said, in this very room, actually, at a program I think about 10 years ago, quote, Carson had a huge crush on Gypsy. Carson had just broken up with her girlfriend, and Gypsy would invite Carson to come up to her room every night, and Gypsy, of course, would not be in her glamorous gowns, she'd be wearing baggy underwear that sagged at the knees, and she was so very casual with Carson, and she would fetch her homemade strudel that she'd made from apples in the backyard, and feed it to Carson, and Carson would have her bottle of whiskey next to her, and they'd lay on the bed and commiserate together, and then it got too late, and Carson would just stay over, and they would, you know, who knows what happened. Davis wasn't the only queer artist to create a refuge of this kind in the Heights, I just want to note. Around the corner at 62 Montague Street lived Willard Moss and Marie Mencken, who in 1943 created the first widely seen underground experimental film, Geography of the Body. Their relationship was incredibly fraught, in part because Moss was gay, and would later be the inspiration for Edward Albee's play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Mencken and Moss would actually go on a decade later to house and teach one of the preeminent early queer experimental filmmakers, Kenneth Anger. For set designer, Fe uh, for set designer Oliver Smith, him here, who was actually the cousin of Paul and Jane Bowles, living in February House would be the beginning of a lifelong love of Brooklyn Heights, and he would soon settle down permanently in a mansion nearby. Years later, in an interview for Dance Magazine, he would admit that his set for West Side Story was, quote, more Brooklyn than Manhattan, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> According to February House, Oliver worked with the brilliant young choreographer Jerome Robbins and the composer Leonard Bernstein on Fancy Free, a ballet story about a pair of naive young sailors on shore leave in New York. Fancy Free, whose setting at a waterfront bar resembled the raucous sand street haunts in Brooklyn, proved enormously successful and was soon transformed into the musical play On the Town. It was subsequently made to a hit Hollywood film. However, those naive young sailors were a source of constant amusement for February House, although they were often not as naive as you might think. In groups or singularly, the residents of February House cruised Sand Street for nights on end. In fact, Sand Street had such a reputation for queer vice at this time, when Charles Demas painted two sailors there being picked up by a John, he simply titled it On That Street. Harold Norse was so tickled by George Davis's long, campy monologues about cruising the bars on Sand Street that he recorded one verbatim in his uh, memoir. And I'm not going to do this justice, but... My dear, when I spotted this gorgeous hunk of seafood in a Sand Street bar, I said to myself, Miss Davis, you have met your piece of trade for life, so get to work, girl, and literally charm the pants off your future husband. And that's what your mother did. He never said a word. How could he, poor dear? Your mother was blindingly brilliant as usual. Well, Missy, he just listened in his strong, silent, manly way. Mm, the very thought of him. So, at some ungodly hour, your mother guided him through the unbroken ranks of tiara-studded queens camping shoulder to shoulder. Scylla and Charybdis, they should call that joint. And we tiptoed through the juleps right out of there, when suddenly your mama, well, dear, you know, finding herself alone in the dark with this big, muscular brute, divine, gets shivery second thoughts. Tsk, tsk, this could be a homicidal maniac, a mad queer basher for all she knows. So, Mademoiselle Davis, she says, Miss Bazaar, get hold of yourself, girl. Are you out of your cotton-picking mind? Have you forgotten the first law of cruising? Never, never, never 
lose control. <laughs> in his essay, A House on the Heights, Truman Capote, who would live in Oliver Smith's house for the next 10 years, that's a photo of him at the base of the stairwell, uh, described the queer cultural inter intermingling that these sailors brought to Brooklyn. Every kind of sailor is common enough here. Even sarongued East Indians, even giant Senegalese, their onyx arms afire with blue, with yellow tattooed flowers, with saucy torsos and garish graffiti. Jetem, hard luck, Mimi Chang, adios amigo. Runty Russians, too. One sees them flap-flapping in their pajama-like costumes. But the barefooted soldiers on but the barefooted sailors on the beach, the three I saw reclining there, profiles set against the sundown, seemed mythical as mermen, more exactly mermaids, for their hair, striped with albino streaks, was lady length, a savage fiber falling to their shoulders, and in their ears gold rings glinted. Whether plenipotentiaries from the pearl-flooded palace of Poseidon or mariners merely, Viking tress seamen out of the Gothic north languishing after a long and barbarous voyage, they are included permanently in my memory's curio cabinet. But who were these sailors, though? And what were their lives really like? Most of them have been lost to the mists of history, their stories not deemed important enough to collect. But some left behind ample evidence of the ways they bridged sexual cultures from around the world, and of the complicated sexualities that they enabled them to walk between the emerging divide between gay and straight worlds, much as had Emil Opfer decades before. Jack Barker, 1915 to 1995, I uh, haven't been able to find a good photo of him yet, was the son of a British lieutenant general who took to the sailing life at an early age. His experiences on commercial vessels across Europe, Australia, and in the Middle East and North Africa broadened his horizons and exposed him to all manners of sexual practice. As a young man in Egypt, for instance, Barker encountered a British doctor who was, quote, keeping statistics of Arabic decadence by measuring the rectums of all of his boy patients. A decidedly British form of decadence, thinly veiled in racist science. It's actually very similar to what Loop the Loop's doctor was doing, you know, 30 years earlier. In his 1962 autobiography, No Moaning There, which is actually taken from a line from Tennyson, not as dirty as it sounds, still kind of dirty, uh, Barker held back about his male lovers, but he described the homosocial world of life at sea, telling stories of men dancing together on, on deck and sharing prostitutes while dockside. At one point, when he returned to Glasgow after a long sail, he recalled being told by another sailor that, quote, after 90 days, you can do what you like with the cook. Parker is primarily remembered, however, for his affairs with Stephen Spender and Charles Coleman, which is how he landed in Brooklyn in 1940. In fact, Barker nearly broke Coleman and Auden apart. In her book, Auden and Love, Dorothy Farnan recalled Barker, whom she called Jack Lansing, as young, bonny, and yearning for adventure, also bisexual. Barker's letters to Coleman, Spencer, Auden, and Farnan show a man of boundless energy, sexual and social. After his disastrous affair with Coleman, which included Coleman pass passing him off to another man who was also one of Auden's lovers after Auden got annoyed by the whole thing, Barker left New York to go work on the war effort. Indeed, while some queer people found work on commercial sailing vessels, America's entry into World War II was about to call up young men and women in unprecedented numbers, throwing them together in unimaginable conditions, where more than a few found company with members of their own sex. And this brings us to 1940-45 to 45, Part 2, Brooklyn at War. Christian Bill Miller was a member of the United States Maritime Service Coast Guard Reservists, who was stationed at the Brooklyn Navy Yard in the early 1940s, when he became the toast of New York City's gay demi-monde. 
Prior to enlisting in the military, he had worked in industrial design, and an inflatable chair that he made is in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art. During the war, the military, impressed by his knowledge of plastics, recalled Miller from service in Australia to help create the Sunstill, a portable device that was capable of distilling fresh water from salt if your ship collapsed in the ocean. Miller is best remembered, however, for his connections to gay artists of the 1940s through 60s. He was a lover and muse of Paul Cadmus, who, in a letter, called him the most beautiful man I have ever met. This is actually a letter that Cadmus wrote to him, which the whole thing is all of these roses. Uh, it's impossible to read, but it's really beautiful. Uh, he also was a lover of George Pat Lines, who photographed Miller in that first photo in his sailor suit, and a lot of times out of his sailor suit. Uh, Monroe Wheeler, another of his lovers, hired him to work at the Museum of Modern Art. Glenway Westcott wrote about him. Otis Bigelow wrote about him. Many, many others. He was prolific. Uh, <laughs> eventually, actually, he would be recruited to be a narrator for sexologist uh, Alfred Kinsey. I'll go back to that last photo so you don't have to stare at his, you know, I don't want, don't want pull focus. Uh, <laughs> He'd be recruited to be a narrator for sexologist Alfred Kinsey, to whom he revealed a prolific and truly democratic sexual history. In letters, photos, and occasional demonstrations, he told Kinsey about hundreds, if not thousands, of sexual encounters with men and women, including the time that he threw a, quote, wonderfully successful gangbang or community fling or clusterfuck for Tennessee Williams. I actually debated reading the whole passage, but it's so filthy that I was like, that. Uh, in the book, it'll be in the book. <laughs> Miller's experience shows the way in which the military, anti-gay as it was, often offered a route to a queer life. Included in, included in his letters to Kinsey were accounts of Miller's experiences in sex work also, as a kept boy to wealthy men and as an occasional prostitute, showing once again that thin line between sailor and sex worker. World War II also opened up ship jobs to women, like Jerry Colbus and her lover Patty, who left Brooklyn Heights to work on the war effort in California. Colbus became the ship's electrician, a job that she loved and would continue to do after the war in Queens, while Patty worked in the accompanying office. Rusty Brown was also a civilian employee of the Navy, working primarily on ships in the Pacific before coming to Brooklyn to work in the naval factories. In an essay, Always Me, included in the book Long Time Passing, The Lives of Older Lesbians, which is the most depressing title I have ever heard. <laughs> she recalled the excitement and danger of shipboard affairs. Our ship was sent to Seattle. During the ride down, I got involved with a Navy woman who was also being shipped to Seattle. Keeping secrets on ship isn't the easiest thing to do. If word had gotten out, she would have been thrown out of the military. So we met secretly. We never had, we could never spare enough time to really have a real sex act, which aggravated both of us. As it was, we were both taking a big chance. Mostly we just tugged and kissed and had a little foreplay. We never did get down to brass tacks. As Brown experience shows, the military was a complicated space. On the one hand, it provided jobs and a chance to meet other queer people. On the other, by the time of World War II, the armed forces were aggressively discharging sailors suspected of homosexuality using, quote, other than honorable discharges a.k.a. blue tickets, because they were printed on blue paper. According to historian Alan Berube, some 4,000 such discharges were handed out by the Navy during World War II alone. Blue tickets were also being disproportionately used at that time against black service members, which led to an alliance between the Veterans Benevolent Association, an early gay social group formed in New York City, and the NAACP. It's hard to underestimate the effect, though, that World War II had on women, and particularly on lesbians. 
From what they wore, to where they worked, to how they spoke, the war effort upended everything for American women. The ripple effects of this economic and social freedom were even more profound, creating a world in which women suddenly had more disposable income, more daily independence, and much greater freedom of association than ever before. The Brooklyn Navy Yard and its surrounding factories was a powerhouse of economic activity during the war. In 1938, the Navy Yard employed 6,800 people. By 1941, that figure was nearly 26,000, and by midway through the war, it hit 70,000. As Columbia University historian John Strobo noted, quote, The Brooklyn Navy Yard went on, went on to hire its first women in industrial jobs in August 1942. When openings for women in helper trainee programs were announced the preceding winter, 20,000 applied. Of these, the yard examined 6,000 and found 3,000 to be qualified. The labor board then called in 200, sending about one half to the shipfitter's shop. It was front page news in the newspapers when it was announced a short time later. As of January 1945, the Navy Yard had 4,657 women in, in production work. Now, while women of color and immigrant women often had to work outside the home before the war, it was only after white U.S.-born women entered the workforce in larger numbers that working women became widely respected in the eyes of mainstream American culture. And while the effect these women had on the image of womanhood in America was great, their numbers, particularly in Brooklyn, were actually never that large. Strobo goes on to note that of that original wave of female hires, only 12 were black, and that relative to other military operations, quote, the Brooklyn Yard, in the middle of the nation's largest labor market, hired the fewest women as a percentage of its total workforce. Betty Chase was one of those first 12 black women, and she told the story of her experience to oral historians at the Brooklyn Historical Society. Only 18 at the time, she liked the work, though she found that some of the men, quote, resented being women being in the tool room, particularly at first. Uh, interestingly enough, none of the white women say that. Uh, and Betty doesn't actually talk about race inflecting uh, her relationship with the men who worked on the job, but it really stands out when you read that in comparison to all of the white women's experiences. Um, although straight, Betty remembered rumors of lesbianism in the yard, and in particular, an uncorroborated story that one woman had sexually assaulted another in the bathroom. But for all of these women, gay and straight, black and white, the work they were doing was revolutionary. In her oral history interview, Lucille Culkin, who's uh, down there in the front, uh, she was a machinist at the Navy Yard, and she said that one of the things she loved about her job was the freedom, quote, from being considered completely feminine. She liked the cursing, the pants, the dirty work, making real money, not doing a traditionally feminine job like nursing or teaching, and the relief that it gave her from the pressure to get married right away. As she put it, those of us who worked in the Navy Yard must have had something a little bit different to begin with. I mean, you wouldn't have taken the most feminine girl. She wouldn't have gone there. It was too dirty, you know, and that would have bothered her. And it didn't bother me. Thanks to the military and factory uniforms these women wore, a revolution occurred in women's clothing. In interviews, both Jerry Colbus and Mabel Hampton recalled that it was virtually unheard of for women to wear pants in public before the war, and that they would in fact pack suitcases when they went to lesbian parties so that they could change into their suits as soon as they got there. Lesbians like Rusty Brown, Naomi Raplansky, who was a minor poet of the time, and Anne Moses, I'll show you here, uh, this is, that's Ann Moses, this is Naomi Replansky, all found war work in or around the Brooklyn Navy Yard. In fact, Replansky would still be working in the factories in 1951 when she received a phone call on the factory floor from an editor at Scribner 
letting her know that they would publish her first book of poetry, Ring Song. That book would include Factory Poem, which described her hunger for work during the war thusly. The tool bit cut, the metal curled, the oil soaked through her clothing. She made 600 parts a day and timed herself by breathing. She dared not quit. She had seen those who fought like jackals over the carcass of a rotting job in cold depression weather. Anne Moses, here's her again. Uh, she's in the, in the front. I think that's, uh, where is she? I think that, no, that one's her. Um, Anne Moses was the daughter of a Romanian immigrant tinsmith named Moisha Moisha, and she was the first woman welder hired by the Todd Shipyard, which is one of the uh, yards connected to the Navy Yard, but not actually part of the Navy. Her nephew, Michael Levine, saved her scrapbook from that time, and those never-before-seen photos reveal a world of butch women at work and at leisure. Levine, who interviewed Moses about her experiences during the war, recalled her, quote, talking about welding 22-gauge galvanized steel, having to drink milk so she wouldn't have bone loss, and working either 95 or 100 days straight at the yard. The first day they had off was when Roosevelt died. And on that day off, she went with the girls to Coney Island, where they rode the cyclone. Interestingly, at that exact same time, a Swedish immigrant named Gustav Beekman, that's his uh, mugshot right there, opened up a private establishment for a very different kind of shore leave entertainment. At 329 Pacific Street, right by the Brooklyn Navy Yard, Beekman connected wealthy men with service members eager to make a quick buck. An anonymous visitor to Beekman's house recorded the experience in his diary, which is now housed at the Kinsey Institute. In his words, quote, His living room was warm and cozy. Young servicemen were sitting on sofas and easy chairs, relaxed and friendly. We felt as if we had entered a happy family circle, George being dad and mom combined. He knew the boy's problems, helped when he could, supplied shelter, food, and money, and was loved with the casual affection that children show their parents. He then proceeded in a businesslike fashion to inquire about our tastes and servicemen. Even the branch of service was left to our choice, for George commanded an unlimited supply. In April of 1942, the house was raided by the FBI and the Department of Naval Intelligence, who accused two German immigrants of using the house as a way to pick up American servicemen working at the Navy Yard and pump them for secrets and other things. <laughs> Composer Virgil Thompson was caught up in the raid, but the real person of interest was David Walsh, who, an isolationist senator from Massachusetts, who was suspected of being one of Beekman's patrons. For weeks, the case of the swastika swishery, as Walter Winchell dubbed it, dominated New York City's press. The two Germans were interned at, interned at Ellis Island for the rest of the war. Beekman was sent to Sing Sing Prison for over 20 years, and Senator Walsh got off scot-free. In a strange proscript to the case, many years later, it would be revealed that the U.S. government collaborated with the mafia on counterintelligence initiatives during World War II. Towards the end of his life, Mayor Lenski, the Brooklyn mafioso who rose to prominence during Prohibition, claimed that as part of this Operation Underworld, his men had been asked by J. Edgar Hoover to investigate Beekman's establishment. Although this is totally uncorroborated, he further claimed that after two of the men in the case were declared innocent, they soon mysteriously turned up dead. According to Lenski, quote, we knew those men were spies, and if the authorities weren't going to handle them, then Charlie's men settled the matter themselves. Now, women who loved women have always been involved in sex work, but, their traces, but the traces of their sexuality are harder to find, since their clients are primarily men. 
Moreover, most accounts of their experiences come from arrest in medical records, like the one I mentioned earlier about Johnson Jarnus, or the stories of their most more famous clients. So we get little access to their private thoughts and their inner monologues and desires. But according to Ruth Rosen, author of The Lost Sisterhood, Prostitution America, 1900 to 1918, nearly all accounts of prostitution, particularly those written by madams, refer to the sexual and or loving relationships that developed between women living in the same household. The situation in the Brooklyn Navy Yard was no different, at least according to Dr. Virginia Livingston, who worked at the infectious disease ward in Brooklyn during World War II. According to a radio interview Dr. Livingston gave during the 1980s, many of the prostitutes that she treated there were lesbians or had same-sex relationships. Sadly, as vast as this world I have described to you might have sounded, when World War II ended in 1945, this fragile queer world would disintegrate nearly overnight. This brings us to post-1945, the great forgetting. What, what is perhaps most shocking about Brooklyn's early queer history is not how expansive it was, but how quickly it was forgotten. Throughout the 50s and 60s, until the Stonewall riots brought queer rights back into the public consciousness, the stories of these queer pioneers were systematically hidden and destroyed. When male service members returned, the women who had rushed to serve their country in the factories of the war effort were summarily fired. As Rusty Brown recalled, in 1945, the war came to an end and our world collapsed. I was working at the Navy base in Brooklyn when the Japanese signed the surrender. 150 of us were told that in two weeks, our jobs would be through. The war was over. The military was all coming back, those that survived, and they were going to give them priority on the jobs. Rusty actually ends up uh, shaving her head and using her grandfather's ID so that she can get a job in a, a factory near the Navy Yard. And when they ask her why she doesn't show her service papers, why she wasn't in the war, she claims to only be 16 years old. And this dodge kind of works for a little while, but not very long. Uh, the blue discharges that were given to queer service members made them ineligible for benefits from the GI Bill and were considered that so shameful that many denied having been in the service at all rather than admit to having received one. Popular culture would be called on to erase the traces of these queer men from memory, and in particular, to break the connection between patriotic sailors and gay sex workers. In the original script for the hit film From Here to Eternity, Frank Sinatra's character Angelo Maggio, described as Brooklyn Italian immigrant stock, has a long discussion with another soldier about the usefulness of occasionally going with a fairy. I admit it's nothing like a woman, but it's something. Besides, old Hal treats me swell. He's always good for a touch when I'm broke. Five bucks, ten bucks, comes in handy in the middle of the month. These lines were cut before the film was ever made. And in a wide variety of other movies, television shows, and novels from the time, the white heterosexual suburban nuclear family became the American ideal. The celebrated image of Rosie the Riveter, the tough working woman in pants, would be jettisoned for the aspirational heterosexuality of Donna Reed and her aprons. The queer art circles in Brooklyn Heights were torn apart by two powerful forces, government anti-communist witch hunts and Robert Moses. During and after World War II, communist witch hunts would purge hundreds of professors and government employees, and an unknowable number of artists and anti-fascists would choose exile over staying in the U.S. The three queer professors at Brooklyn College were all called to testify before various committees, including the House Un-American Activities Committee and the Senate Internal Security Committee. David McKelvey White was a rising star of the Communist Party when he committed suicide in 1945, most likely because the party had discovered his sexual orientation and was prepared to oust him. Bernard Grebonnier, on the other hand, collaborated, and he gave up names of other communist sympathizers. 
including Murray Young, who would then be dismissed from his position. Grabanier stayed on and in the closet until his death in 1977. Robert Moses, the urban planner who perhaps more than anyone else in history shaped New York City's physical world, decided to route the Brooklyn Queens Expressway directly through Middall Street after richer neighbors further away from the waterfront protested its original path. And the house that had provided a refuge to so many queer artists was destroyed. As well, the BQE cut the waterfront off from the rest of the neighborhood, making it much harder for the communities that had formed there to make a living. By 1963, Brooklyn Heights' reputation as a welcoming neighborhood for its eccentric and queer residents would disappear, and an open debate would rage in the letters column of the Brooklyn Heights Press, with one re reader proclaiming that, quote, the homosexual lacks basic morality. The homosexual flaunts his condition. Homosexuals project femininity to the nth degree on the street. As for the homosexual in Brooklyn Heights, I consider him a menace, menace, economically as well as morally. In my seven years in Brooklyn Heights, I have seen it change from a fag haven to respectability. To this day, however, as census data shows, the Heights remains the third most densely queer neighborhood in New York, after only Chelsea and Greenwich Village. Simultaneous to all this, the waterfront itself was experiencing a massive slowdown in work. By 1966, the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which just 20 years earlier had had 70,000 employees, would be entirely decommissioned. As container shipping, which needed large areas of undeveloped land for warehouses loading and unloading, became the norm, much of the waterfront's commercial business also left, moving to New Jersey. Coney Island also began a long, slow side, as television and other forms of popular entertainment began to attract more of its customers. Here again, we see Robert Moses' hand, as throughout the 40s and 50s, he rezoned and replaced many of the existing attractions, including the municipal baths where Harold Norris had his sexual awakening and the former home of Luna Park. Brooklyn's queer world was always economically fragile, and the mounting pressures of deindustrialization cut the legs out from under it, just as they did to other working-class communities along the waterfront. Additionally, the aggressive suburbanization of the 1950s encouraged a turn away from diversity and urban density, economically, physically, and morally. Unlike the histories of most other marginalized communities, queer history is passed horizontally, from peer to peer, and not vertically through families, schools, or churches. It requires density. Not only did these changes destroy the burgeoning communities that existed, they broke the connections that enabled them to be remembered. Or at least, they did until now. Thank you. So I don't really know how long I talked because I kind of black out whenever I'm on stage, but apparently we're going to do some question and answers now. So if anyone... Questions? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to mention about women wearing uh, dresses. I'm older, and in the mid-80s when I was developing my career, mm -hmm. I worked at um, a professional firm, one of the top accounting firms. We had to wear a dress every single, a, a suit. A dress was too hoary, so you had to wear a suit. And it couldn't even be with tights. It had to be pantyhose. Mm -hmm. Okay. It wasn't written in the rules, but if you didn't, goodbye. Next. You know, yep. so... It wasn't only the 40s. In the 80s, women still had to wear dresses. Absolutely. You were looked 
you know, frowned upon. And every, pretty much every woman that I've been able to talk to from those time periods or who have oral histories from that time period that are extant comment on this. They talk about being harassed if they happen to wear their uniform out of work. They talk about people staring at them on the streets. They talk about being afraid to wear pants. Um, so thank you. Hi. Um, it seems almost inconceivable that Mabel Hampton would not remember the name of her first grade love. Do you think she was being discreet or what do you think was going on? The tapes are actually made over the course of about five years. And over the course of them, um, Mabel's memory really degrades. So it's kind of hard to tell when she's being discreet and when she really isn't remembering things. Uh, for instance, she tells the story about working at Coney Island and this woman a number of times. But it, at different times, she says she's 18 when she works there. At other And uh, other times she says it, she's 20. At times she says it's 1920. But at other times she says she was sentenced to Bedford Hills in 1920. So there's definitely some slippage going on. I'm not really sure which it is in that case. I think in that particular moment, she wasn't able to remember that woman's name. But when she starts naming names later, there's definitely moments where she she specifically does not name a name or she'll only give the first name to sort of protect some anonymity. Uh, just curious, did you find anything about uh, sort of what the communities around these people, their families, and outside of newspapers and periodicals and things like that, but what sort of the acceptance level was or what what, how they were in touch with those local communities and that sort of, uh, you know, what the public's consensus was in terms of treating them as real people. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all over the place. One thing I want to make clear is that aside from that little cluster that sort of forms in Brooklyn Heights very specifically, a lot of these weren't communities. They're kind of individual instances of people who are having similar experiences and living in the same set of conditions, but they may not have been aware of each other. Uh, Naomi Replansky, who is still alive, actually said to me, I, I didn't know there were any other lesbians in the factories during like decade that I worked there. You know, like she was not aware of this. Other women were. Um, so just to preface what you're saying, but in terms of like other people's acceptance, it, it's really all over the place. You know, Hart Crane is out to a whole lot of people. Most of them are totally cool with it, but he never tells his family, even though he and his mother have this incredibly close relationship. You know, it's, it's too fraught. They provide economic support for him. And so he's really nervous about it. Uh, Mabel Hampton says that she was out basically her entire life, but that she really kept to herself and mostly uh, hung out only with other queer women just because the dangers of, of coming out were just too high. She, in fact, tells one story at one point about uh, spending like a year knowing this gay man and knowing that he's gay, but never coming out to him because it was just even that was too much, you know. Uh, but you do get some people, some of the, the folks I'm talking about really like, uh, loop the loop in the description that she gives to Schufeld of her work clearly has a network of other people, other trans women who are working in sex work, who she is in touch with, who she knows. We don't get any indication about their lives or what they do, but she makes it sound as though they have a pretty established world, right? The cops know who they are and, and they accept payoffs from them, just like any other sex worker working the docks. Uh, so it's really up and down. That article that I read uh, from Otto Sperling in defense of Elizabeth Trondle is not refuted in any way. You know, there's no counter argument to it. And the judge says it's kind of ridiculous that we have this law about masquerading in boys' clothes. Um, but then you get that thing in, you know, the, the fag haven in the 60s. So there's not really a clear narrative, but there's definitely, as um, queerness becomes more visible, right, as 
these identities that we think of today as like lesbian, gay, trans become more something that people are aware of, the initial reaction is a lot of homophobia. You know, you can kind of track it by looking at the army. In World War I, they didn't really understand what being gay was, and they didn't really have a good mechanism for getting rid of gay people. Same thing with immigration. The be best they could do was you're likely to end up as a ward of the state if you uh, looked, you know, strange or effeminate or too butch. You weren't going to get married if you were a butch woman. You weren't going to have a job if you were an effeminate man. And so they kind of push them out that way. But by the time you get to the 40s, when we really start to know what it means to be straight and gay, or not know, but we define it, uh, the military gets this really like elaborate apparatus to find and hunt homosexuals. And you see this happening in the courts as well. Uh, around the same time as the communist witch hunts, we get the lavender scare. So there is um, something of a, a tendency that we can track, but for each of these individuals, it's kind of all over the place. Okay. <clears throat> uh, in addition to On the Town, are there any other examples of family-friendly pop culture that bubbled <laughs> up from uh, queer Brooklyn sailor hustlers or anything along those lines? I mean, does Gypsy Rose Lee's The G-String Murders count as family-friendly? <laughs> uh, that might be the closest. Um, I try to think about that. I, from Here to Eternity, both the book and the movie uh, are, you know, fairly family-friendly, I would say. Um, most of the rest of their work, not not particularly. No, a lot of these people, especially the artists, were really on the cutting edge of what could be said at their time. Uh, and they paid a price for it. You know, the reason they all lived on the waterfront was not because it was glamorous and exciting. It was because it was cheap and there were sailors. Um, but they didn't write a lot of family-friendly stuff. Hi, I'm curious about this map. We've been looking at it all night, and uh, I was, is it related to your research? What year is it from? What are these pink spots? So the, the long story of this map is, start off, it's actually made by Avram Finkelstein, who is sitting over here, who's a wonderful artist and has been so helpful with this entire project. Uh, very quickly, I started doing this research gosh, about five years ago when the organization that I had founded, the Pop-Up Museum of Queer History, was going to do a show about the queer history of the Brooklyn waterfront with an organization uh, that it w w went very badly in the end. The show never ended up happening. Everything got canceled. Um, and I've been sort of puttering along on this research ever since. This image was originally made as part of the work around that. We ended up doing a one-day outdoor show. So this image, I believe, and Avram, you might know better, so correct me if I'm wrong, but 19-teens? Yeah. So this is from the 19 teens um, and was included in the, the end papers of a book that we were using. Um, but then Abram did the, the changing of it. And these pink splotches all sort of outlined different areas where the work we were looking at during that project uh, was highlighted. So that's like the Navy Yard there. And over there is uh, the two splotches are Columbia Heights, where Hart Crane was. And I believe uh, the one closer in is 7 Middle Street. Um, but I just thought it would make a great sort of background for this moment. Uh, yeah, that's the sand street leading up to the entrance of the Brooklyn Navy Yard, Hell's Half Acre. <clears throat> so my apologies, we're out of time. Thank you all for coming. Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you for being Thanks again for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. Visit nypl.org for all of our programs. And don't forget, if you like the show, please rate and review us in iTunes. And next week, Casanova, Seduction and Genius in Venice, with Lawrence Burr Green, Emily Witt, and Dr. Ruth. <laughs>